last year, our family took a big step. We got a dog. <clears throat> Actually, truth be told, we already had a dog. In fact, we've had lots of dogs since Tara and I have been married. Um, but truthfully, I've never been a dog person, really. Um, if it were up to me, it probably would have been just as well not to have dogs or bunnies or lizards or fish or any of the things we've had. <clears throat> But such is family life, right? And then last summer, we got Chappie. And uh, I turned into a dog person. Maybe not, maybe not an all-out dog person, like watch the AKC dog show after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every Thanksgiving. But, like, take your dog with you when you go to the park, when you go hiking, like drive through the drive-thru and order your dog food. All the things that I used to think only silly people did? Like, why would people do that? Like, why would they buy things for their dog? Why would they buy costumes for their dog? Why would they take their dog places? All the things that used to seem crazy to me now make perfect sense. In fact, just last week, Tara ordered, I think it's memory foam. It's probably nicer than our bed. Like a big bed for Chappie. <clears throat> and I can't help myself when we walk by the, the dog aisle at Costco. I'm, I'm looking for treats and bones and all kinds of Things. The point being, what I used to think was really silly, I'm beginning to, to see differently. And I'm beginning to say, oh yeah, I, I can see that. Because my perspective has changed. That which I didn't understand before, I'm beginning to understand now. So here's the tie-in. This is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Like, not that we would necessarily see animals differently, but that we would see everything differently. That we would see everything through the perspective of Scripture. That we would see everything through the eyes of God himself. Because the Bible is clear that we are all born into this world, bent out of shape by sin. We don't see clearly. We don't see reality as it really is. We don't see God for who he is. But as Christians... Our life mission as we seek to glorify God is that slowly the Holy Spirit would take our minds and reshape them and take our desires and mold them so that we would think differently and act differently and desire differently so that we would see reality as it really is, as God says that it is, and that the things before that didn't make sense or that we thought were ridiculous or silly, like why would I spend my money for the kingdom cause of Christ in this way? Why would I invest my time like this? Why would I enter into a relationship with this person? Why would I go and do that? Those things that we used to think were ridiculous will all of a sudden start to make more sense and we will begin to say, oh yeah, I see that now. That makes sense because we're seen as God sees in fact, this is precisely what the Apostle Paul refers to when he writes in Romans chapter 12, and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In fact, you might remember the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray 
the Lord's Prayer, we sometimes call it, includes these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? <clears throat> In heaven. Like one of the th- ways that we are to pray as Jesus followers is that the Lord's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the ways that the Lord's will is done on earth as it is in heaven is when the followers of Jesus begin to see earthly things from their heavenly perspective. When a perspective changes. So as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, our goal then is to have a changed perspective, a changed vision, changed priorities, changed affections. This means that we see God for who he truly is. It means we see ourselves for who we truly are, both apart from him and in him. And we see others, we see those around us as fellow image bearers. We see others from their heavenly perspective as well. And as we do those things, the things that we used to think were silly before begin to make sense. And the people that we used to think were beyond the hope of God's grace, beyond the hope of God's time, begin to look like the very people that Jesus Christ came to save. In fact, that's what our passage is all about this morning. Luke chapter 15. So we've been making our way, if you're new here, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, section by section. We're going to, next week, take about four or five weeks away and spend some time on an Advent series, thinking about the birth of Jesus Christ into our world and what that means and why that's significant. And then in January, we're going to pick back up. In fact, Pastor Nick Rogers is going to preach Luke 15, verses 11 and following. We're going to pick back up back here in Luke 15. But this morning, we want to focus in on verses 1 through 10. And Luke begins by setting up the context for us. Jesus is in the middle of his earthly ministry. He has preached and healed and attracted a crowd of people around him. The quote-unquote problem is, though, that this is not the kind of crowd that the religious leaders and the religious establishment expected. This crowd includes tax collectors and notorious sinners, we learn in verse 1. Now, when we read tax collectors, you're not to think that this is somehow just some sort of kind of sneaky IRS agent. Um, I don't know any IRS agents, but I'm sure that there are lots of godly, faithful IRS agents who are out there. So don't think sneaky IRS agent. Uh, Instead, you're supposed to think something else, because tax collectors in Jesus' day were often corrupt, not so much for what they collected, but how and why they collected. So just to give you some background, in short, the Jews were under the controlling, occupying force of the Roman Empire. So they lived as a nation state of people really under the oppression of the Romans who controlled their lives, who controlled their kingdom. They were granted a fair amount of independence, but... The Romans kept an eye on them. And so for a Jew to work as a tax collector looked a lot like choosing personal and professional gain over national and ethnic and patriotic loyalty. 
Like the tax collectors enforced the tax laws and they collected taxes, taking money from their own people so that they could send it to contribute to the wealth of a foreign government, the Romans. Another reason the tax collectors were so hated by the Jews is because they not only charged the Roman tax, but they added their own profit and charged the people essentially whatever they wanted. And the people had no recourse. So if the Roman tax was, let's say, 16%, they could charge 24% and then pocket the 8%. They could cheat their fellow Jews to get rich in the process. So you can see why tax collectors were hated, why they became really a bucket term to describe all kinds of sinful, undesirable people in the first century. And yet, these are the very people who are flocking around Jesus to hear him. So last week, we ended off on the last verse of Luke chapter 14. Jesus has just taught about the cost of following him, of being his disciple, what it means to be his disciple. And then in verse 35, Jesus ends by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he kind of issues this call, like, he who has ears to hear, like, if you're really interested, if you are really a part of the people of God, if you are really having your heart stirred by God, then you will hear this message. You will hear what I have to say, and you will acknowledge its truthfulness. And then in the very next verse, notice the kinds of people who have ears to hear. It's tax collectors. It's sinners. Like, that's significant. These are the people who are looked down upon by the religious establishment and the religious elites. These are the people who work jobs that the scribes taught were incompatible with keeping God's law. Like, you cannot honor Yahweh and be a tax collector. So devout Jews wouldn't even associate with tax collectors and sinners. They wouldn't dare spend time with the ungodly. After all, the, their sinfulness of the ungodly might rub off, might be contagious. It might rub off on us because we're trying to be godly. And this is why the Pharisees and the scribes throughout Jesus' ministry find his actions to be so revolting. On one hand, he is a man who, who claimed Divinity. He is a man who claimed to teach with the authority of God himself and to be God himself. He was a man who claimed to, to unveil for people who Yahweh was and what he was like. And yet, on the other hand, he is a man who is always surrounded by sinners, by the unclean, by the sick, by the outcasts and the rejects of society. And they are the ones who spend time with him. This is how the Pharisees saw the world. This was their perspective. This is how they saw people. And sadly, this can be our mindset too. Like as Christians, we know the value of choosing friends wisely. You know, the, the value of, of time spent in relationships and how formative that can be. I mean, that's one of the, the benefits of the local church is that we are mutually forming and shaping one another hopefully into the image of Christ. But we can be so concerned and so consumed with that that we fail to invest in relationships with those who aren't like us, who don't think like us, who don't vote like us, maybe those who are trapped in addictions different than the sins that tempt us. 
Maybe those who are engaging in lifestyles that we find repulsive. You know, we're unwilling to befriend, build relationships, connect, and engage. And when, when those kinds of people, just like the Pharisees had those kinds of people, when those kinds of people move next door or move into the cubicle or join the sports team, we're like, ah, oh, man. Before we're too hard on the Pharisees, we need, to, we need to recognize the subtle temptation in our own hearts as well. To not see through God's perspective. And so this is what Jesus does here. He challenges their worldview. He pushes back against the way they saw things. And in the process, he reveals how things actually are in heaven. He actually reveals how things are in ultimate reality. And in so doing, he also uncovers the chasm that exists between the way the Pharisees saw people and the way God sees people. Just look at verse 3. Jesus said, so he told them this parable. Jesus said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus, gathered around Jesus are tax collectors and sinners. You can imagine maybe just outside that circle are the Pharisees and the scribes who are looking on with disgust and disdain that not only would these kinds of people be gathering to Jesus, but that Jesus would be spending time with them, that he wouldn't be telling them to get away. And then Jesus, seeing their heart, knowing what they're thinking, he responds to them with a parable. Remember, a parable is a story with an eternal message. Parables are designed to highlight a big idea or a central truth. So we don't necessarily look for a hidden meaning in every single detail in every single parable because parables primarily point out one big thing. And this parable is no different. Jesus goes into the parable of the lost sheep, it might be termed in your Bible. I'm going to give you a better title. The parable of the rescuing shepherd. So if you are someone that's not going to lose sleep by like actually writing in your Bible, let me just encourage you to maybe in the margin write the parable of the rescuing shepherd. Because the focal point of this parable really isn't about the lostness of the sheep. It's about the kindness of the shepherd to rescue the lost sheep. So what does he do? He leaves the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. Now this week I was reading on this text for a variety of different opinions and perspectives and commentaries and things. There are just some silly ideas out there. Some who were writing saying this demonstrates the foolishness of a shepherd because no right-minded shepherd would leave 99 sheep in the open field where they could wander off or where they could go get lost or where they were <clears throat> be susceptible to, to prey coming. But that's to miss the point. 
Like Nothing in this parable implies that the shepherd is reckless with the 99 sheep. In fact, the idea here given to us is that the 99 are already gathered. Like they're not lost. And so here's the point. The shepherd is not distracted by the 99. He doesn't say, you know what, 99, close enough. After all, I mean, 99 out of 100 is 99%. And who isn't excited about 99%? I'm in school, 99%, like, all right, dance the happy dance, right, 99%. You go to the BMV, you're going to take your driver's license test, and 99 out of 100, right? Like, mom and dad, we're getting pizza tonight. I got 100, almost 100, and I got an A. My driver test, you go to the doctor, and they plug the little thingy on your finger and measures blood oxygen level, 99%, right? Like, all right, I'm healthy, I'm not going to die today. Like 99 is good. In fact, we could say 99 is great, but not to the good shepherd. To the good shepherd, every single sheep has value. So he goes and he searches. He leaves the 99 behind and he goes off into the wilderness, perhaps. And maybe he journeys through the mountains Maybe he journeys through the desert. Maybe he goes away from where the, the, the streams of water flow and where there's green grass and where the sheep can lie down and he goes into the rocky, into the, into the dangerous places until far off in the distance he sees that sheep who has maybe passed out, maybe died of exhaustion. Or maybe it's caught in a thicket or maybe it's just kind of going in circles and can't find its way home. And in love the shepherd goes to that lost sheep, and he, he gently and lovingly picks it up and places it on his broad shoulders. The sheep who is too sick, too weak to find its way home. And he carries this sheep home. What is the response of the good shepherd here? And the image we have is not of a shepherd who's, you know, the next day is on the phone with his friends like, hey, what were the results of the chariot race yesterday, yeah, I missed it. It's something about a lost sheep. Yeah, don't worry, I found it. But like, what happened? No. Look, look at the text, verse 5. And when he found it, he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice. With me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Like the point of the parable is the joy of the rescuing shepherd when he finds the one lost sheep. Like the point of the parable is that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Like it's as though Jesus is giving us a live stream into heaven, like pulling back the curtain, turning on the camera, like, I want you to know what's going on, just a bit of what's going on in the heavenly realms. It's not often that Jesus does this, but here he gives us this live stream picture into what is going on in the heavenly realms ultimate reality, the things that we would not otherwise known, know if Jesus had not told us. And what he shows us is the 
incredible, unparalleled joy that exists. The utter celebration, the, the rafters that are shaking with the celebration when even one sinner is brought home by the good shepherd. And there is more joy in heaven, Jesus says, over one who repents and comes home than over 99 who think they are righteous and don't think they need repentance. And this point is so important that Jesus repeats himself. He gives us a second parable with the same message. It's like when your parents growing up would like, like, yeah, mom, you told me that before. Like, be careful when you go out on the road. It might be slippery. Be careful. You know, it's Friday night. The crazies are out. Like, be careful. Like, yeah, you've told me that. They're repeating it because they care. They're repeating it because it's important. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Same parable, or different parable, but the same point. Listen to this second parable, verse 8. Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying... Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, this is probably titled in your Bible, The Parable of the Lost Coin. I think there are better titles for it. Maybe one might be The Parable of the Seeking and Finding Woman. Because again... This is not so much about the lost coin as it is about the diligence of this woman who seeks out and finds that which was lost. And in this case, she has 10 silver coins. So just for kind of background purposes, in our world of electronic like transactions, I know coins are oftentimes a hassle. If you're like me and you're like, Oh, I'm going to have to pay in cash. And the worst part of paying in cash is then I'm going to get changed. And it's going to, you know, all day long, it's going to rattle around my pocket. It's going to be heavy. And then I get home, like, what am I going to do with it? If I don't forget, it's going to end up in the washer and bang around in the dryer. Like, it's a hassle. But in Jesus' day, right, they didn't have electronic transactions. Ten silver coins was a big deal. You could buy a whole sheep with ten silver coins. This is no small amount of money. And she has 10, but she loses one. I know what we do sometimes when we lose things. We search for a while, then we give up. And this past week, we were in Michigan <clears throat> for Thanksgiving, and one of, one of our kids lost a pair of shorts. And we're like, oh, we need to find these shorts. And so we're looking around. I'm looking around a little bit. Tara's looking around a little bit. We can't find the shorts. So then we have a, a search party. Like, all right, kids, we're all going to take the next 10 minutes we're going to tear this house apart. We have to find these shorts. They didn't disappear. They didn't dissolve. They're somewhere. Let's find these shorts. And so we looked and looked and looked. Didn't find them. After a while, Tara's like, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not that big a deal. If we find them, we find them. If someone else finds them, someone else finds them. No big deal. But you know what is a big deal to this woman? This lost coin. And you know what is a big deal to the creator God? One lost sinner. 
She doesn't say, ah, you know what, nine is good enough. It's a 90, still an A, or maybe it's a B plus, but it's passing, right? What does she do? Like she turns the house upside down looking for the lost coin. She takes the cushions off the couch. She moves the refrigerator. She pulls out the drawer. She goes through the coat pockets. She's pulling back the carpeting. Like nine is not good enough. She had ten. And she's going to see that she safely has ten again. So she's going to look until she finds that last coin. And then when she finds that last coin, what a party they have. She calls together her friends and her neighbors like, hey, let's party. Rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. This is her response over losing just one of her nine coins. And Jesus says, just so I tell you, or in the same way I tell you, or in light of this, I share with you this eternal truth. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here's the point of both of these parables. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10. And every time someone is found, every time someone repents and is brought home, heaven celebrates. Even over one. Even over the least likely to be saved. Even over those who were formerly far from God. Even then, heaven celebrates. I think it's important for us to note here that even though Jesus uses two parables, in other words, two fictional stories to make his point, the truth that's being revealed in these parables is 100% reality. Look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is telling us something about the way things are in heaven. This is a heavenly reality. And again, this is not how the Pharisees saw people. They just saw lostness. Maybe they lumped people into groups. Like, that's those people who deal with that addiction or who struggle with that sin, or who are engaged in that lifestyle. Those are those people who battle with those kinds of temptations, or who have had those things happen in their lives. There there are those people, those sinners. And Jesus pushes back against that, because every life has value. 99 sheep aren't enough if the Father has given to him 100. Nine coins is not enough if the Father has given 10. Jesus said, I have come to call and save all that the Father has given to me. John chapter 6 records Jesus' words like this. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given to me. Not 99 out of 100, not 9 out of 10, but that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on on the last day. For it is the will of my Father that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like Jesus is content saving most of those whom the Father has given him. It sounds more like Jesus will save all that the Father has given him. 99% isn't close enough. But tragically, it was for the Pharisees, and tragically, it, it can be for us. Like, we're, we're okay, we're good with Jesus saving us. <clears throat> we understand Jesus saving people who are a lot like us, who think like us and act like us and vote like us. We don't often think through the fact that all people are made in the image of God. And just like the Pharisees didn't see the tax collectors as worth being saved, or at least they thought them least likely to be saved, it's possible that there are those in our lives or those that we interact with every day or those that we should be going to, whether they're in the nations or they're they're right here at home, and we don't because we think they'll never believe. They'll never turn. They're so steeped in sin. They're so addicted to their sin, to their love of self, to their love of pleasure, to their lifestyle. They will never turn and repent and trust in Jesus. And we can get comfortable with the 99%, can't we? We can get to the place where we don't lose sleep at night over the 99%. As long as Jesus has saved most of the people especially most of the people who think like me, act like me, are like me. But tragically, the same subtle temptation that gripped the Pharisees can grip us. And it wasn't just the Pharisees. There was a long line of religious malpractice stretching way back into the Old Testament. For example, God spoke through one of his prophets named Ezekiel with this terrifying message that God was about to judge the shepherds of Israel, meaning the religious leaders in Israel, that they would be punished. Because instead of caring for God's people, instead of tending to the flock of God, instead of using their authority to protect the flock and feed the flock and care for the flock, they used their authority to please themselves and to fulfill their own desires. And so the picture is of a shepherd who, instead of protecting the sheep, eats the sheep, like cooks the sheep and eats the sheep, gorging himself on the very flock that he's supposed to be protecting. In fact, I would just encourage you to go back to Ezekiel chapter 34 this afternoon and and read it. It's, It's tragic, but it's important. It's telling. But it's also hopeful. Ezekiel 34 is hopeful because God doesn't just call out the shepherds for their wickedness. He also promises that a day would come when he would search for and rescue the sheep. That he would be the good shepherd who would do the very thing that Jesus says the good shepherd does here in Luke chapter 15. 
In fact, there's way too much good stuff in Ezekiel 34, but let me just give you an appetizer. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God. So now God is speaking. He is speaking to not only the lost sheep of Israel, but to the religious leaders who were gorging themselves on the very sheep they were supposed to care for. God says, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on the rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And now here stands Jesus surrounded by the lost sheep of Israel as the good shepherd who seeks and saves the lost sheep, as the good shepherd who will lay down his life For the sheep, as the shepherd who will suffer and die and rise from the dead, so that all who believe in him, all who turn, repenting of their sin, might be saved. And every time, every time that happens, heaven explodes in celebration. Like there's no fatiguing in heaven over the celebration that happens when a sinner is brought home. So one of my favorite parts of our tri-annual member meetings that we have is is when we welcome in new members. So what happens is, if you've never been there, I'm going to tell you, if you've been there, you, you know what this is like. But one of the elders stands up here, and we all have like sheets of paper with member candidates who have gone through the class, they've been interviewed, they've... Um, they filled out the, the kind of the questionnaire, and so the elders have like approved, like, yeah, bring them before the church. And so now these candidates are brought before the church. <clears throat> One of the elders will read just a short little bio kind of about so-and-so, and they'll say, you know, this is Nick Rogers, and he's married to Bethany, and he's from Tennessee, and this is a little bit about him, and the Lord saved him at this age and did this. He is repented, he's baptized, he's trusting in Jesus Christ, all in favor of Nick Rogers for membership, say aye. And, and there's this like, overwhelming, joyous, I, as everybody's like, yes, someone, we can celebrate their salvation, we can celebrate adding them to this local church. But what happens, oftentimes, because we'll usually have kind of 30 to 50 names, is we get to like name 46. And what happens is, especially so like if your name is at the end of the alphabet, like we're not any less excited to have you here, but it's just, we get tired. We were just like, hi, right? That doesn't happen in heaven. For thousands of years, every time the good shepherd brings a lost sheep home, heaven erupts in celebration as though it were the very first one. And as Christ followers, this is where we need to pray, God, in me as it is in heaven. 
Because truth be told, we don't always live with this heavenly way of thinking. And we need to have our minds renewed. We need to have our thinking aligned so that what is true in heaven would also be true in our hearts. So that we wouldn't be content with the 99. So that we wouldn't think that there are those who have gone too far or have become too hardened in their sin. So that we wouldn't fail to rightly honor and celebrate our Lord as he brings another one home. Even using us in that process. Like we need a change in thinking that comes when the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. Where we think, yeah, they'll never change. Where we used to think, they'll never change. And now we think differently. When we used to think they're so committed to their sinful lifestyle, they're so committed to their sin, or they're so entrapped by their addiction, they are beyond the range of the rescuing work of Jesus Christ. We need a change in our thinking where we used to be angry at or about certain people, maybe for the things that they did, or maybe for the sin that they affirmed and supported. We're like, how in the world could they affirm that sin? Or how in the world could they engage in that And this morning, we need the Holy Spirit to change our perspective. We need to pray, Father, in in me as it is in heaven, knowing that from heaven's perspective, those people are not the true enemy. Like the true enemy is Satan. These are the ones who are simply blinded and bound by Satan, and so following Satan and his devices, which only lead to the grave. We should be aligning our priorities and our affections Do we love the lost like this? It's as though Jesus were saying, okay, you want to be a friend of God? Then rejoice with God as he brings another lost one home. Now, to be sure, there are things that keep us from celebrating a sinner who repents. There are things that keep us from seeing with heaven's perspective. For example, when we forget that we were once lost. Like we intellectually know, yeah, I once was blind and now I see. Yeah, I once was lost, but now I'm a believer. But where over time, sometimes God's amazing grace to rescue us begins to just become kind of like grace instead of amazing grace. We begin to forget just how dead and hopeless and helpless we were apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. We begin to think that because we know more of the Bible or we know more theology or we have a seminary education or we go to Sunday school or we're a part of a small group or we serve and we teach in the nursery, we think that somehow we've sort of merited the place at the table where we now sit. We need a change in our thinking. Sometimes we fail to celebrate the saving work of God because we have a suspicion that someone's repentance isn't genuine. And maybe you've been there. It was that sorority sister, that fraternity brother, that friend from high school, that you knew how they were in school, you knew how they were in the past, or maybe you know what they're like at work because you work with them, you kind of see them from a distance. And then one day, they profess Christ, like the Lord saved me. 
You're like, yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. Like we're afraid to celebrate because we, we're afraid that what if I celebrate and then the repentance is ingenuine? How about we celebrate and let the Lord straighten that out? Or maybe we don't celebrate because we think that what if I go to build a relationship with someone who's lost? Or what if they turn and profess Christ and I celebrate that? What, what do other people think? Like, won't it seem like I'm condoning their sin? Or what if they profess faith in Christ but don't immediately drop all of their sin at the door? And maybe my other Christian friends will think that somehow I'm supporting their sin by celebrating their salvation as though all of our sinful tendencies and habits and sin committing was left at the door. As though we're now glorified and sinless. Or maybe we don't celebrate as we should because we forget that heaven and hell are real. In our world of virtual reality, we forget that there is an ultimate reality that is inescapable. An eternal heaven and an eternal hell. So how can we cultivate hearts that are aligned with these heavenly realities? How can it be in our hearts as it is in heaven? Let me just give you three applications quickly. First, we should be shaped by texts of scripture like this. In fact, I'm so glad that this week, if you're, especially if you're in a small group, you're going to be marinating in this text this week, thinking it through. Okay, how does it apply? What is the Lord through his Holy Spirit saying to me through this text? How does this relate to the way I treat that a neighbor who annoys me to death or that family member who is so hardened in their sin or that coworker who completely ridicules Christians? Friends, a steady diet of Scripture shapes our minds as we see the holiness of God and the horror of sin and the grace of Christ and the undeservedness of salvation and the unparalleled and indestructible joy that we have been given in salvation. And the more we saturate our minds with God's revealed truth, the more our thinking changes. And the more our thinking changes, the more our hearts are brought into alignment with heavenly realities. Secondly, <clears throat> we should pray for God to give us his heart. Like we should pray that God would break our heart for the lost. And that God would shape our heart that we might go to the lost and that we might celebrate when he saves the lost. Pray for God to keep our hearts soft to the neediness around us or maybe break our hearts to the neediness around us. People who need to be found, people who need to be rescued, people who need to repent and believe and find forgiveness and liberation and joy that reconciliation with the Creator brings. That instead of seeing other people who think differently, act differently, are engaged in sins that are not the sins we're tempted in, instead of seeing them as the enemy, rightfully seeing Satan as the enemy and seeing them as ignorant victims of the enemy's strategies. And then third and finally, we should exercise our heavenly mindedness. But we should exercise our heavenly mindedness by speaking gospel hope. Like if we want to think heavenly thoughts, if we want to see people the way God sees people, it requires not only marinating in the word and praying that God through his Holy Spirit would change our hearts, but it requires some exercise. 
And nothing is better exercise for thinking about people the way God sees them as speaking gospel hope. Like, when was the last time you spoke of the gospel with someone who needs Jesus? And I say that not to guilt you, but to cause us to reflect on this. Because, brothers and sisters, the way that lost sheep are found by the good shepherd is through the loving gospel words of other sheep. Like, we're getting a picture of what's going on behind the scenes in heaven as Jesus shows us the shepherd who goes out and gets the lost sheep and brings the lost sheep back. But from, for our physical eyes and our physical ears, we don't see all of that. We don't see that which is going on. To us, it looks a lot like found sheep sharing the hope of the shepherd with sheep who are lost around the world. Millions who have never heard. And your coworker, your friend, your neighbor, that person on your sports team, the person in the next dorm room. CCF, I pray that God shapes our hearts to better reflect his heavenly reality. Like, I pray that God would continue to shape us as men and women and young people to see other men and women and young people the way God does. That we would see the value of every single life and that we would celebrate God's saving work even in the one as he uses us to speak the gospel. And I pray that all of that leads us to more deeply love and worship our saving God who through Jesus Christ, his son, came to seek and save the one, the lost. Would you stand with me?